As we've seen the past few Sundays in this last section of Galatians, Paul deals with the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And if we are not careful, we might think or even say, I know this. I I understand what this means. Flesh means physical or the material, the embodied existence, and spiritual means the immaterial or unembodied unbodied existence. And the spirit is higher than the flesh. That seems to be what Paul is saying. And I think this is the way oftentimes we approach the scripture, as though we can understand it on our own, quite apart from the work of the spirit, who gives us understanding. As we've seen, as I've tried to make clear, when Paul speaks of the flesh, he does not mean only the physical aspect of our being, though it is important for us to remember we are embodied creatures. That is to say, that's how God made us. That didn't happen to us because of sin. That's the way God made us. And in the words of Genesis 1, it is good. Or, as it says in verse 31, God saw saw all that he had made, and it was very good. One of the things that we learn from the fact that we are embodied is that we are dependent. We're finite. I'm here, I'm not outside. I, I can't be in two places at one time as much as I might want to. I am limited and I'm dependent upon the one who sustains all things. More than that, we require instruction or revelation so that we find Adam, the perfect man, made in God's image, is still someone who needs to be told what to do and what he is not to do. He doesn't intuitively know these things. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned, we remain embodied, we remain dependent, we require instruction and revelation. But now, on this side of Eden, we are in rebellion against the one in whose image we are made, against the one on whom we are dependent for existence itself, and against the one who alone has the instruction, the revelation that we need. Now, when Paul speaks of the flesh, he is referring to that which is natural to human beings, to our human nature. Since we live after Eden, after the fall, we would say a fallen human nature. But again, even if there had been no fall, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, the flesh is still inadequate. We we cannot be independent. We are always dependent upon God. And it is God who gives us what we need. In seeking to redeem us, to recreate us, God the Father sent God the Son to achieve for us what we could not on our own, to purchase us back from our fallen state and to give us new life. Then the Father and the Son sent God the Holy Spirit. And as Paul wrote in chapter 4, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. It is when the Spirit of God lives in us and leads us that we can begin to live life as we were meant to. It is sort of in a sense, going back to Eden. But it's even better than Eden because now we have the Spirit of God to guide us and to instruct us. Thus we find Paul telling the Galatians and us, in verse number 18, if you are led by the Spirit, verse 16, live by the Spirit, verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. What we have to ask ourselves, and we've been looking at this the past few Sundays, where does our true identity lie? We're given two options in this regard, either in the flesh, that is, dependent but in rebellion against God, or the spirit. And these two stand in opposition to each other. 
we can either do the works of the flesh or we can gratify, uh, the, gratify the desires of the flesh or we can walk in the spirit. In verses 19 through 23, which we've spent the last two Sundays looking at, Paul gives us two lists of qualities, well, sins and then virtues. One that marks the flesh, which is natural to us, which is in rebellion against the creator, and one that comes from the spirit. To put it another way, the first list is what we were not made for, and the second list are the things we were, in fact, made for. In the works of the flesh, Paul lists 15 sins, which we put into four categories. Sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, and then religious or ritual sins, idolatry and witchcraft. Social sins, sins against our neighbors, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. The King James adds murders. And then lastly, drinking sins, drunkenness, and orgies. Or we could put it another way. Self-gratification rather than neighborly love. Putting something or someone in the place of God. Refusing to love my neighbor and being out of control. The second list we looked at last week are the fruit of the Spirit. Nine qualities that mark life in the Spirit. I mentioned several things before we got into it. I just want to mention several of them by way of review. First of all, Paul is presenting a sharp, it is a striking contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh clearly have their origins in us. Okay, They get their energy from us. The human nature that is in rebellion against God. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is a result of something outside of ourselves. The Spirit of God comes and lives within us. The power that works within us comes from outside of ourselves. Secondly, and I think this is important to remember, the qualities that he mentions, the nine fruit of the Spirit, are in fact, in fact what we would call Christ-likeness. This is a portrait of Jesus Christ, just as 1 Corinthians 13 is. And then thirdly, the reality of already not yet is so important here. We are to become what we are in fact, we already are. We are the children of God. But we are to live as the children of God. We already belong to Christ. And we are to live in the light of that reality. We are to put sin to death and we are to display the fruit of the Spirit. We divided the works of the flesh into four categories. The fruit we divide into three. Qualities that demonstrate our attitude toward God. That's love, joy, peace. Qualities that demonstrate our attitude toward other people. Patience, kindness, goodness. And then qualities that demonstrate the believer's attitude toward oneself. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is not a one-to-one correspondence. Otherwise, we'd have 15 and 15 or 9 and 9. But we do find striking contrast. Now, this can be dangerous because I don't think Paul meant to give one-to-one correspondence. But if we work from what God wants us to be, what he intended us to be, and then see how we've gone astray, we see that love, the first fruit of the Spirit, is the nature of God, and it is directed toward others, as demonstrated supremely in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. The flesh, on the other hand, seeks its own way. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. It's all about what I want, my desires, loving me. The second fruit is joy, which rests in God and what he has done, is doing and will do. 
But the flesh seeks its own way. We want what we want and we want it now. This is where idolatry comes in. This is where sorcery or magic, seeking to get what I want. Peace, shalom, the way things ought to be. But instead, the flesh seeks its own way and we find hatred, hostility, discord, dissensions and factions. Patience. The ability to be wronged and wronged again and to have the ability to retaliate but never to do that. But the flesh seeks its own way. Fits of rage or temper tantrums, as one translation has it. Kindness, the active side of patience, seeking what is best for another. But the flesh says no. Selfish ambition is what guides the works of the flesh. Goodness is moral excellence. The flesh seeks its own way, envy. Faithfulness and gentleness in contrast to jealousy. And interestingly enough, it ends with self-control, the strength to say no to oneself in order to meet the needs of others. We are to be more concerned about others than we are ourselves. But the flesh wants its own way, drunkenness and orgies, which ironically ends up in the loss of control. This last virtue, self-control, and what we find in verse number 24, where we begin today, uh, bring up an issue that I mentioned last Sunday. If you look at verse number 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. But here he says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. So it's, I am crucified, but I'm also one who crucifies. Um, is Paul saying that the Christian life is, in fact, something for which we have to work. The answer to this is important. Paul does not suggest here or anywhere in his writings that something we do contributes to what God has done to us, that we belong to Christ because somehow we have done something. But we cannot come to belong to Christ without abandoning the old identity. That's what being crucified means, that old identity. This is who I was. And by God's grace, this is who I am. I am in, united with Christ. The question then is, are we responsible for our sanctification, for our becoming Christ-like? On the one hand, we would say, yes, we are to walk in the Spirit. But immediately we would say, no, we are responsible, but not in the sense that we can, in fact, achieve this on our own. We should remember what the flesh is. It is our humanity. It still requires instruction and revelation. It is still dependent. And it does not have the work of the Spirit. And therefore, we must look to the Spirit, moment by moment, to guide us, to direct us. We need the Spirit of God, the life of God within us. As I mentioned last week, in Philippians 2, Paul says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But immediately he continues, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. These nine qualities that Paul lists are not things that if we try really hard, we can do on our own, apart from the Spirit. The point I think that Paul is trying to make is that when the Spirit is at work in our lives, we begin to see these things. But it doesn't mean that he bypasses our will, that he bypasses our thinking, that we just sort of kick back, put it in neutral, and let the Spirit sort of carry us along. We are very much to be active in this. 
It doesn't come naturally. Otherwise, what Paul writes in verse number 25 makes so, no sense. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, we have a responsibility. These qualities do not happen automatically. What happens automatically in my life and in your life are the works of the flesh. These are the things we do whenever we put ourselves, our minds, or our bodies in neutral. And so, if in fact I find my struggle, myself struggling with patience, I need to ask myself, what are the circumstances that I see that lead to a loss of patience? Those are the things I need to deal with, maybe to avoid, so that I will in fact have the fruit of the Spirit that is patience. What about verse number 25? Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We are those who belong to Christ, verse 24. We live by the Spirit, verse 25, and we keep in step with the Spirit. But what does this mean? I suspect that in our thinking, it goes in the direction of that this is about personal relationship, which is certainly a part of that. But also, I think it goes in the direction that this is voluntary, that this is a choice, that this is optional, which is certainly not the case. Because of what Paul has written thus far in the book of Galatians about the law, I think we really misunderstand things he writes toward the end of the letter. Whenever law comes up, we tend to think in negative terms, as in, you're not the boss of me, don't try to tell me what to do. Even in verse number 23, the end of verse number 23, which, by the way, I failed to cover last Sunday, we read, against such things there is no law which seems to imply that even the law is not opposed to such virtues, for all that the law was opposed to. But I think this fails to appreciate what Paul is saying, as well as it fails to make a distinction between the law as condemning and the law as rule, as guidance. In Christ, there is no condemnation, and therefore we can't go back to the law, the law that condemns. If you think the law doing good things will get you to heaven, you are condemned. On the other hand, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, the law doesn't count anymore, so I can commit murder. Because the law doesn't count. No. It is still there to give us guidance and direction. I think before we go any further, we need to examine the matter of authority and the, its place in the life of the Christian. The book that came out last year by Victor Lee Austin is entitled Up With Authority. Why We Need Authority to Flourish as Human Beings. This book has been so helpful to me in this area. In the introduction, he states, We cannot succeed at being human beings. We cannot have a flourishing human life without the functioning of authority in the multiple dimensions within which we live. A bit later, he says, The necessity of authority is a manifestation of the glory of being human. If we think about authority in our paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption, I suspect that we would say creation, no authority, redemption, no authority. It's in the fall that we have authority. Since we're sinners, we have to be told what to do like kids needing to be disciplined. But in creation and in redemption, um, authority really isn't necessary. This fails to appreciate what it means to be human. Austin writes, authority is built into what it means to be human, and we will never escape from needing it for our flourishing. His conclusion in his book is entitled Authority in Paradise, begins with this. 
It is not sin that makes authority necessary. Rather, even if human beings were unencumbered by sin, they would still need authority in order to flourish. He argues in the beginning of his book that unsinful human beings, that would be Adam and Eve before they sin, need authority even more than sinners. I think that for many of us, we struggle with this because we think, well, now that we are the people of God, now that we have been set free, we can do what we want. There is no authority over us. No, authority is part and parcel of what it means to be human. And what Austin argues in his book is that in heaven, we will be under greater, greater authority than we are even now. That the more complex we become, the more human we become, as God intended us, the more there is this need for the connection with God that we might be told what it is we should do. He writes, we as flawed human beings need authority. And that as we become less flawed, and he puts in parenthesis what I call more human on the assumption that we can grow or diminish in life and thus become more fully human or less, we need authority all the more. This points to two truths. As creatures, we need to be told what to do. As new creatures in Christ, we still need to be told what to do. There must be authority over us. And I would argue that authority is the Spirit of God. But why does this sound so strange to us? Why do we have such a negative view of authority? Well, part of it is that we are, in fact, in rebellion against the Creator. And so there is this deep, abiding suspicion of authority. Culturally, I mean, beyond the 60s, where the theme was question authority, as Americans, I think we sort of relish the freedom that we have, and we don't like anyone telling us what to do. And when you speak of authority, I think just culturally as we are, we really rebel against that. And we might say, well, look at the Bible. The Bible speaks disparagingly of authority. Jesus called the twelve together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first of all must be slave of all. So it seems that Jesus was opposed to authority. I think also we see authority as supporting the status quo. That authority is seen as resisting any meaningful change in society. So for us as Christians here in 2011, I think the notion of authority seems like a bad thing. And I think this could in fact impact profoundly our study of Galatians. Paul is not telling the Galatians, and us as well, that the gospel has eliminated the need for authority. We shouldn't think, well, boy, under the law, people are under authority. Now that we are Christians, no more authority. We can do whatever it is we want. It is only through Jesus, the crucified Messiah, that we can have new life and we can receive the Spirit of God. This does not mean that we get to do as we please, that we have the freedom to do as we please. It is quite the opposite. And that's why Paul writes what he does. We just hear it differently, I think, from what he meant it to be. When we hear about the fruit of the Spirit, we think, well, that's nice. That's nice to, to have these 
these fruits come out in my life. Also, sort of kick back and allow the Spirit to bear fruit. And the Spirit of God comes to be seen as a guest, the invisible guest in my life, who lives within us with our approval, uh, who makes gentle suggestions from time to time, who may be ignored, and who is not the boss of us. This is a rejection of authority, and it is a deeply flawed view of God's work in our lives. So when we read phrases like, live by the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, we should not think in terms of options. You know, today I think I'm going to live by the Spirit. We should, in fact, consider that the Spirit is God's authority in our lives. And we are to obey what God has told us to do. We think in terms of option, but what if, in fact, it's not the case? Paul presents two identities, the flesh and the spirit, and in both there is an authority. In the one, we are under the authority of sin. We are bound by sin. And in the other, we are under God's direct authority through the spirit in our lives. To be human is to require authority. To be a new creature in Christ is to need authority as well. And therefore, when Paul speaks of being led by the Spirit, this is not some optional excursion, something that you want to add on to what you have in terms of salvation, something you can sign up for if you choose to. The Spirit of God is God's authority in our life, and we are to obey Him. Thus, Paul writes what he does in verse number 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is not optional. We are to listen to the Spirit. And if we do not, look at verse number 26. This is the result. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. If we do not submit to the authority of the Spirit, then we will live in anarchy. We will live in the flesh, marked by self-centeredness and a radical individualism. Back during World War II in 1943, C.S. Lewis wrote about pride, that the devil laughs when he sees us overcome by pride. He says, he is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be content to see your chilblains, which is uh, frostbite or trenchfoot, cured, if he allowed, in return to give you cancer. For pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. We are to follow the Spirit. This is not optional. We are the children of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are to follow the laws of God. Now we come to chapter 6. And there tends to be a tendency, I've noticed as we've gone through various letters by Paul, to see the final chapter as Paul sort of hurriedly trying to wrap it up. Let's let's hurry up and get this letter out before the postman comes. Um, In the same way, I think that oftentimes we may see the beginning of his letters as sort of optional, that they're sort of flowery greetings and he's just, you know, sort of oozing with sweetness and then then he gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, We take such a view, I think, at our own parable. I would remind you, first of all, that the chapter divisions were added later, the ones we use in the 13th century. 
and that this letter must be taken as a whole, not just bits and pieces that are cut and pasted together, and that there is to be an organic connection between every part of this letter, between the last part and what came before it. I think this helps us to make what we will look at intensely more practical and helpful, not simply moralistic advice, something that Paul sort of tacks on at the end. Look, if you would, as I read the first five verses. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else, somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. The section begins with the word brothers, the address brothers. Nine times in this letter, Paul has addressed the Galatians as brothers. In a letter that has been rather severe in places, Paul wants to remind them that they are brothers. And whether the issue is theological error, which the letter has dealt with, or particular sin, this passage here deals with, we are brothers. We are to remember that we are members of the family of God. And it is because of this truth that Paul writes what he does and what follows, that sin does not merely affect the person who commits it, it affects and offends the entire family. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. This is not as haphazard as one might imagine. Paul has just written about the works of the flesh as well as the fruit of the spirit. How are the Galatians to put this into practice in the congregation? Well, Paul's statement is framed in such a way to point to the high probability that someone, not most of the people in the congregation, in fact, will sin. Sin is not a hypothetical possibility. It is a reality. The word caught, I think, is unfortunate um, because it gives the implication that somehow we've caught somebody doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And, and particularly because the second part, you who are spiritual should restore them. So it's like somehow in the church on Melrose, we will have the spiritual police who run around trying to catch you doing something you shouldn't do. And then once they catch you, then they try to restore you. Uh, I prefer what the King James has here. If a man be overtaken in a fault. Okay. It is that this person has been ambushed. He has been caught by sin. Not that we have caught him committing the sin. But in fact, this person has been overtaken in a fault. That sin has tripped him up. The point of the verse is not catching someone, but it is in fact trying to help them once in fact they have fallen into sin. Now Paul doesn't tell us what kind of sin he's thinking of. Because I think he's trying to get the point across. He's establishing a principle. That is, that sin in fact has the potential to ambush each and every one of us. Two things to consider here. Who are, who are the ones who are spiritual? In light of 1 Corinthians, it is tempting to see Paul as being ironic here. As though he were saying, oh, you think you're more spiritual than others? Okay, you guys who think you're more spiritual, then you need to take care of those who have fallen into sin. Paul used irony quite a bit in his letters, but I don't think he's doing so here. He's just given us two lists, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And now he gives an example of a brother or a sister overtaken by a sin, a work of the flesh. Those who are his or her brothers or sisters should demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit by gently, 
because gentleness, meekness, is one of the fruit of the Spirit, restoring that person. In Paul's writings, one who is spiritual is one who has the Spirit of God. Okay? That's what makes you spiritual. Now, the Corinthians had twisted around, and they thought, in fact, that you had sort of carnal Christians and you had spiritual Christians who were more advanced. They were wrong, but somehow that thinking has stayed with the church all these centuries later. Um, As new creatures, when we are united with Christ, we are given the Spirit of God, which means we are not simply embodied beings. We now have the Spirit of God, therefore we are spiritual, those who have the Spirit of God. The second thing I want you to consider as we look at to this is the corporate or the communal nature of the church. I mentioned last Sunday that I feared that perhaps I had taken too individualistic an approach to what Paul had been writing. If, if the Galatians had done the same thing, Paul immediately plunges them and us into a cor- corporate, communal, congregational scenario. In the congregation, if someone has been ambushed by sin, the congregation should restore this person gently. By the way, Austin, in his book on authority, I mentioned earlier, asserts, he says, I will claim that the human being is essentially social, and this means for us that the group pre-exists the individual. That's counterintuitive for us, particularly as Americans. We think we're individuals and we join the group. And... Austin says, no, it's quite the reverse. We are part of a group. That, the group, the church was here before you came along. And you become a part of it. The group pre-exists the individual. So in this passage, and actually it goes up to verse number 10, but we'll only go to verse 5 today. We find Paul moving back and forth between the corporate and the individual. So he says, congregation, restore him gently. Individual, watch yourself or you yourself may also be tempted. Congregation, carry each other's burdens. Individual, each one should test his own actions. Each one should carry his own load. We must must not think purely in terms of ourselves, but of the congregation. So what does Paul mean here in verse number one? If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. When someone is ambushed by sin, such sins should not be excused. We should not negate personal responsibility, but neither should the person be condemned out of hand. The word restore speaks of resetting a bone that has been broken or mending a net that has been torn. Recognizing the pain and the danger that this person has suffered, the congregation is to seek to restore, to mend, to reset this person. Paul doesn't give us details for which I think we should be thankful because no doubt circumstances vary uh, from congregation to congregation. I think we can assume safely, though, from his other letters that part of restoration involves, first of all, a recognition of sin, what this person did was wrong. Secondly, a confession of sin, a repentance of sin publicly, and then teaching and training and walking with this person as we restore it. This is how you are supposed to walk in the Spirit. So he doesn't tell us how, or he doesn't tell us what we should do. He tells us how to do it, though, that we should do it gently. Gentleness is oftentimes seen as weakness. 
In fact, it is great strength under control. Tremendous power, and yet done so in a very controlled way. One should not rush into such matters with self-confidence and even arrogance. (laughs) I see you've fallen into sin. Let me help you. Let me fix you up. Paul warns, watch yourself or you also may be tempted. I need to be on guard lest something similar happen to me. I don't think that Paul is saying that I might fall into the same sin. That if someone falls into sin, A, I need to be careful as I'm trying to restore this brother or sister that I might fall into the same sin. Rather than that, I think the real temptation, the real danger is I might be filled with pride and arrogance. That here I am, I'm spiritual, I'm going to help poor sinful you. Paul says, watch yourself. You are just as vulnerable as that brother or that sister. And with that in mind, it allows me to respond with gentleness. Because I should be aware of my own frailty. But more than that, the fruit of the Spirit. One who is spiritual, who has the Spirit, should respond with gentleness. In addition to this, Paul says in verse number 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What burdens might Paul have in mind? Well, he doesn't say, and I think this leaves the door open. Every burden of every kind. You can make a list. All the different types of burdens that you yourself may be carrying. But lest we get off track here, let's, let's realize what Paul is saying here. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. We are intimately connected, joined to one another, just as we are intimately joined or united to Jesus Christ. And when we bear each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. I alluded to this earlier, that after what we've read in the book of Galatians, it might be surprising to hear Paul use law in such a positive way. But the issue is condemnation versus rule. If you're looking to the law to somehow win you God's favor, God's grace, God's salvation, then you are condemned. But if you put your trust in Jesus for grace and salvation, you are a part of the family, the kingdom, the people of God. And as such, there is a particular way you're supposed to live. As one writer called it, Christian civics. We're part of the kingdom of God. How are we supposed to live? You can call it the fruit of the Spirit. You can call it the law of Christ. Both have their roots in love, looking out for someone else. When we look out for each other, when we bear each other's burdens, we are acting, hopefully by God's grace, in love. And we are following the example of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 3 might seem unrelated, but I think Paul is pointing to the possible temptation that he warned against in verse number 1. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, When we see someone who is hurting and who needs to be restored, who needs to be corrected, because of our own wicked hearts, we might, in fact, begin to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Augustine was asked to summarize what one might call the law of Christ. What, what, what is involved in the law of Christ? He said, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. The church, we as Christians, are not immune to self-promotion and the advancement of ourselves at the expense of others. 
As one writer put it, it is all too easy to make ourselves, ourselves appear better than we are in the context of a downfall of another. Thus Paul will write in verse 4, Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. This raises all sorts of red flags. How can Paul even suggest that a Christian take pride in himself or herself? Well, we'll see near the end of the book in verse number 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So we'll come back to verse 4 when we get to verse 14. One last verse, verse number 5. For each one should carry his own load. In both verses 4 and 5, Paul seems to contradict himself, first about boasting and now about bearing each other's burdens. In verse 2, he says that we are to bear each other's burdens. In verse 5, he says we should carry our own. I wish he would make up his mind. What is he saying? Well, first of all, he uses two different words. In the King James, which is all these years later, I still think in the King James, it uses the word burden in both. But the NIV, quite correctly, has two different words, burden in verse number two and load in verse number five. The word used for burden is something that is too great for one person to carry. That one person cannot reasonably carry that burden. Load, on the other hand, would be the equivalent of a backpack. Something that one could very easily carry. Now, he does use the same word in both verses of carrying or bearing. He tells us this is what we should do. Verse number five, just as it is wrong to ignore someone who has a burden that is weighing them down, they cannot make it on their own. It's wrong to ignore that person. We are to bear each other's burdens. In the same way, it is wrong to impose on others, to impose on the kindness of others, something that is a relatively light load, something that I have a responsibility to carry. I'm more familiar with verse number two, I have to tell you, than I am with verse number five. But I'm so glad that verse number five is there, because otherwise I think people in the church would simply be dumping on each other all the time. Here, you carry my burden. No, there are times when I'm to carry my own burden. I have a responsibility. I'm under the authority of the Spirit of God. But there are times when someone has a burden that is crushing. It's overwhelming. And I'm to stand with such a person and to help them bear their burdens. In these first verses of chapter 6, what we've looked at today, and the Lord willing, what we'll look at next week, Paul fleshes out what it means to walk in the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit, to walk in step with the Spirit. But I think the key for us, particularly living when and where we do, is to recognize the authority of the Spirit in our lives. This is not optional. Hey, I think I'll walk in the Spirit today. No. We are under the authority of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you've not abandoned us. You've not left us to our own devices, to our own understanding of your word. You have, in fact, given us your spirit who opens our hearts, our minds, our eyes to see the truth of what is written. 
But because we are sinners, and living when and where we do, we may have taken a very weak view of your spirit to think that he's just sort of the quiet guest that sits in the corner that we can consult whenever we need help rather than the fact that he is the authority in our lives we are to listen to him we are to obey we are to walk we are to keep in step with the spirit And just as a drill sergeant might call out cadence for those who are marching, we are to listen to the Spirit as He commands us, as He directs us, as He guides us. May we as individuals and as a congregation listen to your Spirit and not be listeners only, but doers as well. May we bear each other's burdens. May we also carry our own loads. May we deal with each other with gentleness, with kindness, with love. It's only possible because of your spirit. I thank you that we could gather on this first day of a new week to worship together. We pray for those that will be traveling today through this week. For each of us as we go to our homes, you would bring us to our destination safely. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Would you stand please? We'll sing the doxology together.